Welcome to the Maximo Theater and Performance Podcast. This is Jose Solis. Today I'm talking to playwright actor Kate Hamill. You might know her as the star of Vanity Fair, Pride and Prejudice, and Sense and Sensibility, which she also adapted for the stage. She's like the Emma Thompson of American theater now that I think about it. Kate and I spoke about her recent adaptation of Little Women, running at the Cherry Lane Theater through June 29th. Enjoy the show. Kate, thank you so much for, for joining me. How thank are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm great. I am a huge fan of your work, and I loved Little Women. Excuse me while I fanboy for a moment. <laughs> I love Little Women more than I can, uh, more than I can say, because uh, it's a book that they make everyone read yeah. when they're in school. Yeah. And I always found it really boring. Yeah. And I, <laughs> and I always found the movie adaptations pretty bland. Yeah. But seeing what you did with the book is that you turned it into something that I feel is very personal to you. Am I wrong? No, not at all. Um, you know, I uh, it's like been a very long journey with this particular adaptation. Um, it's the hardest one I ever did. And... Uh, I adapted the frigging Odyssey. So I was not expecting Little Women to be hard, but it really was. Um, part of it was personal. Part of it was political. Uh, so I was given this book when I was really young, 11 or 12 years old, um, by my mom. And uh, yeah, I'm <laughs> um, I, I feel comfortable saying this. My mom and I have not always had like um, the most... Uh, uh, leave it to beaver relationship but this was like something really lovely we had between us and um, so I wanted I did have great fondness for the book but when I reread the book with an eye towards adapting it because I wanted to um, I am really interested in doing um, explicitly feminist um, theatrical adaptations that are socially progressive um, uh, and making them female-centered in Little Women is a natural one because it is about American women. Um, it is foundational for a lot of Americans and American women. And I was like, wow, it'd be really interesting to try to sort of reclaim that or um, address it. Uh, I was coming up against, uh, but I, I, I had not personally read it since I was in school. And when I reread it, I was like, it is super charming and it has lots of lovely things, but some parts of it, it's really hard to read them as anything but a tragedy, um, especially once I did more dramaturgical research into Louisa May Alcott's life. Uh, she didn't particularly want to write Little Women. Um, she kind of liked writing like gory, gothic uh, thrillers, and uh, her publisher wanted her to write it. And so um, she started writing it. She based it on her own family. Um, and uh, including her sister who died. And uh, much to her surprise, it became this huge monster hit. And she had based the character of Joe in particular on herself. And uh, she, because it was, she always knew she wasn't going to marry Joe off to Lori. Um, but because the book was so popular at the time, um, even in the 19th century, she was coming under a lot of pressure to marry Joe off to someone because Joe was giving signals of being not straight. And it is my firm belief and my awesome dramaturg, Kristen Leahy, who I love, shares in this belief, and we did a little research um, into it, uh, is that Louisa May Alcott herself was not straight. Um, she may have been bisexual. Um, but she has this quote where she said, I have the soul of a man in a woman's body. I've never fallen in love with men, but I've fallen in love with hundreds of pretty young girls. People tend to poo-poo that as, oh, but she didn't really mean it. Why didn't she really mean that? Like, what? And if you read the book again, in the last 500 pages, Joe decides to give up her writing career and marry a man. And it is my firm belief, which is not what Alcott did, it's my firm belief that Alcott closeted her main character in order to protect her own personal life and to protect herself. But that was a little bit moot to me, Alcott's sexuality. I'm sort of rambling here. Um, but uh, I was really interested in creating a play because I knew by the virtue of this title in particular that lots of young people would come see it, teenagers, families, children. 
uh, writing a play in which people could see, um, especially LGBTQ teens and kids, that people like them have always existed in society, that there is a place for them, that they can be the heroes of a classic story, of a classic American story, that stories about American women um, do not have to be dramaturgically rigid, that in fact that is antithetical to the nature of theater, that people should be represented on stage, um, that these classics can change, and that Americans can go see pieces, foundational pieces of American literature that reflect who we are today and say something about where we are today. Um, and then I was commissioned by the Junko Theater in Minneapolis. Um, uh, the artistic director, Sarah Rasmussen, and I had worked together before. She's so great. Um, really a lovely director in person. And she commissioned me to do this piece. And uh, yeah, it was a long journey because I started the first draft of it before the election. And I was kind of feeling like, well, this country has been messed up, but we're kind of headed in the right direction. Obama was just president. Hillary's going to be president. And right after the election, um, in retrospect, I was terribly like naive, basically, thinking that there, uh, you know, that we were headed in a basically forward direction. Um, and for about a month and a half, I pretty much abandoned the project. I was like, I don't want to write this play. I don't want to write a play which is about like, you know, staying in conversation with people that who are different from you. Um, because I did not want to stay in conversation with people who were different from me politically. I was sort of on the side of like, well, we should have two countries. And so this play, eventually I was like, do I really believe that? Do I really want to cede America to people who are hateful and white supremacists and sexists and misogynists and um, homophobes and or do I want to take this American play and kind of make it a refutation of that or try to do that and speaking to young audiences as well as adults so that's a very long story it was personal to me as well uh, when I was writing it uh, uh, a very close family member of mine was terribly ill um, she thought she was dying. The doctors thought she was dying. We thought she was dying. Um, and at that time, she was under uh, the influence of a lot of medication. Uh, and she, I was sitting by her bedside, and she said, tell me a story. And I said, what kind of story? And she said, a story about myself. And I said, you know, once upon a time, there was a woman, blah, blah, blah. And uh, she said, and when that woman died, and I got mad. I was like, no, in this story, the woman never dies. And uh, that became that I, I don't think plays are useful unless you're putting, or mean anything, unless you're putting something of yourself into it. So that became a framework of the play. So yeah, it was, but it was not, it was not a walk in the park to do with this particular one. What, what you're talking about right now about, you know, you were seeing a country divided and people mm -hmm. keep talking about a divided country in a way that we're going back to the 19th century when yeah. the book takes place. Yes. During your research, did you find any other spooky elements, um, parallels is what I mean, elements yeah. between the 19th century, especially when it comes to women and, and today? Well, you know what I thought was so interesting is we have such a stratified, ridiculous um, idea about our own past. One of the things, uh, you know, I've done a couple of plays, uh, four plays, set in the five plays, set in the 19th century. And one of the reasons why I really like setting play, plays in the 19th century, besides I happen to be paddling in that pool, um, and once you do one thing, theaters are like, don't you do that thing? Um, <laughs> don't you want to do that thing again? Uh, which is nice, I'm not complaining. Um, uh, I think theirs was a society that was in the middle of a lot of flux. Um, theirs was a society, society with great wealth disparity, which is very true now. Um, the lie we tell to ourselves about our past is that people were very, very different than they are now. Um, you know, the kind of kickback I've gotten back from this play is like, well, you're shoehorning in. Uh, Joe's sexuality or your shoehorning in this discomfort with gender roles and I'm like actually dramaturgically that's not true people have always lived outside those boxes um, people have always had to deal with those kind of ramifications Alcott herself did and how those gender roles kind of betray you even the sort of uh, the you know the sort of 
I'd like people to come around, young people to come away from this play being like, I, there's no wrong way to be a woman. And in fact, I don't even have to, I can reject that label altogether. And I'm not like the first of my kind. Joe is someone who doesn't have any role models per se, but who can sense maybe the role model of that kind. But yeah, I think the big lie to ourselves is, oh, you know, again, and I think that's a result of our own biases. Um, that's not how the past was. Um, the, and I think we have those um, blinders on in all sorts of ways, gender role-wise, certainly, um, race-wise, uh, orientation-wise. I think we think people fit in uh, very small boxes and they never did um, one of the very interesting things that I came across was like uh, you know we tend to think like well uh, the union was pretty united and in fact there were terrible like race riots and it, there was so much racism in the north which of course there still is um, but the, it was not at all a united cause it was a united country and in for a huge percentage of the war the union was losing so it was not so much this like oh the you know history is moving in the right direction and we'll get there it was very fraught and um it was interesting to revisit like you know we tend to think ours is always the most tumultuous time and that um we're uniquely lost but we're not yeah i i agree one of the things that i i love uh, what you did with with Joe, who's always been the central character, yeah. basically. But what you're saying right now, because you know, I, I I've gotten into quite a few arguments when people are like, "But this is so modern for little women," and blah blah yeah. blah, whatever. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that I find so interesting is that even for me, growing up as a little gay boy, yeah, I saw myself in Joe. And I don't think that was not there. I think, in fact, it was coded. Yeah. And it's, I don't know. There's authors who you read, even uh, Jane Austen to a yeah. certain degree. Like there are very queer elements in yes. uh, Elizabeth Bennet. Yes. And also in in the Dashwood sisters who yes. are just living, you know, not <laughs> like they want because they couldn't. Yes. But I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about that because those things are there and it's crazy to me that even women yeah uh, are like no this is too modern like I want like romance and like Mr. Darcy to come save me yeah I you know what I think is always so funny is I'm always like well and people have the right to their viewpoint for sure I I'm not particularly defensive about it um but I'm always like, well, the book always exists. Like the many adaptations that are very faithful to the original exist. You can put on the Winona Ryder White movie anytime you want. It's like on Netflix or whatever. Um, but why are we not trying to speak to today's youth and today's people and what's happening right now? Um, why are we not trying to create something completely new um, sort of for what's happening now? And I. I, I'm less concerned with, I think trying to recreate the original is a disservice both to the original and whatever you're trying to create, but it just doesn't interest me. I, I mean, uh, uh, like, I, I find uh, sexual, the sexual spectrum in everything I ever adapt, and like, I do think that's true to human life. I'm, I'm working on an Emma right now, and I'm like so interested in the, um, a friendship between Emma and Harriet Smith it's very very um gay you know like super they're super gay but like you know and I I as like a, a, a bisexual woman who has been in a hetero very happy monogamous heterosexual relationship for eight years seven years is like I I, I suppose you could say like I'm putting that lens on it, but I actually don't think I am. Like, they're very, like, and I can be like, is are these two women who just have a very close female friendship uh, that is sort of bleeding those lines, or are they a little bit in love with each other? I, I don't 
I'm more interested in what it's saying now. Um, same thing, but Joe, especially, I was like, okay, we know for a fact, statistically, LGBTQ teens are five times more likely to kill themselves, are more likely to be suicidal, um, depressed, rejected by their families. So why would we not try to create something that speaks to them now? Um, versus like, I just, I can't, I can't get behind another story of like, oh, she goes off and finds a much older man. Mm. And, and I would argue the people who are, <laughs> some of the people who are upset, I'm like, I challenge you to go back and read the book as an adult, because reading the book as an adult was really fascinating for me, because all of a sudden I was like, oh, these women are just being asked to sublimate themselves, to sublimate their anger all the time. And even if that was a good survival strategy in the 1860s, it's not good to preach that gospel now. We need that anger. We need being able to stay true to yourself. So, you know, if and some part of me that's like a giant brat and I am a bit of a brat I am like I like I'm like yay people are mad about my little women because I do feel like okay at least it means I'm trying to do something I feel like if I were cynical and just trying to cash in I would have written like a little women Christmas and bought a house you know <laughs> um because that's I, I I understand the lure of that stuff but I feel like well it's not I I just would hate myself so I have to try to do something um, it's more interesting and in whether or not people feel like that succeeds um, that's sort of I mean I think we're in an interesting time right now where um, a lot of people are talking about like uh, what arts criticism means for me arts criticism is like a very vital part of the arts community and um, you can see how much theaters are suffering now that arts criticism is getting cut and I'm like something a reviewer um, can do is is uh, is is be like is is she succeeding in what I think she's trying to do and that I think is a totally valid response and maybe they feel like I mess it up or maybe they feel like it works but it's that's um, I'm sort of cool with that <laughs> I'm like it's cool that people are mad at it's not cool. Some part of me doesn't like it, but some part of me is like, well, at least people are mad. At least they're having like a reaction to Little Women. Um, whereas like Lily White heteronormative Little Women's are just like they're a dime a dozen. I mean, we can we we could pull it up right now. That's that's not. It's gonna be depressing. Yeah, I find it depressing. But mm -hmm. I love that you brought up criticism because mm -hmm. one of the uh, not one of the the way that I approach criticism, and yeah. I don't want to make this about myself. But no. But the way I approach criticism is yeah. that criticism is an art form. Yeah. And what I wanted to bring up at some point during the conversation, which is why I'm glad you brought it up, <laughs> is that what you are doing with your adaptations is criticism. You are creating art yeah. from a critical perspective, yeah. reacting to art. Yeah. And that is criticism. Yeah, I think that's why... I don't feel antagonism with critics. Um, I mean, occasionally I'll get a review where I'm like, woof, you know, um, <laughs> but I, I do feel like, well, if I'm um, an artist responding to art, then I, and putting it out for public consumption, um, then how can I object to people doing the same thing? Uh, you know, and it goes back, I do think they're necessary, um, they're necessary partners. Um, I do feel like, you know, and, and there are people who I agree with more and less and people who I think bring their own. But in the same way I bring my own um, scope to things, people bring their own scope to things. Um, yeah, I, I feel like, um, I think we're learning now uh, how necessary arts criticism is um, to the lifeblood of this business uh, or art form and I think we're um, I actually think it's good we're like having that conversation I think it's good we're having a conversation that is like well uh, why aren't these circles more diverse I remember the first 
show I had widely reviewed, which was Sense and Sensibility, at one point I looked out into the audience and I realized, and this was 2014, the first run of it was five years ago. Literally every, it was a whole bunch of critics from the show and when you're in the show, you could see them, especially in that city. And every person was a white man. And I was like, oh my God, like that's, that's, that, and some of those, white men like I think they're great and I adore and some of them I think are like not uh, I'm probably not their biggest fan they're not my biggest fan but um, that's not really their function the problem is I was like oh my god what is happening I think it's so good that we're now having that conversation Um, but I again I'm a little bit of a brat so like even when people hate me I'm like well (laughs) made you think (laughs) really made you think about how how you were going to tear me apart when you are having this dialogue with the piece mm-hmm. and with Louisa May Alcott, yes, did you ever cry out into the heavens like, Louisa, <laughs> I need your input here? Um, you know, I try to think of them as like, because I, I do do new plays as well, but the things have been produced in the uh, last five years um, uh, have only been the adaptation so far. Um, I get it. Uh, I, I I try to think of them as like collaborations between myself and an author who is currently dead. And I did feel like I haven't been haunted yet by the ghost <laughs> of William Makepeace Thackeray or Homer, you know, Alcott or whatever. Um, I, I did feel like I was trying to weave in both what I love about the book and its extreme personal importance to me and the extreme personal importance of her story and the audience I was more or less writing for today, which is, I I wanted to not write a children's play. I wanted to write a play adults could come to, Um, but I did want to write, it is a play about adolescence and going from childhood, they're more or less children, uh, very grown teenagers. In the first act of the second act, they are adults, and they're smacking up against adulthood um, and all of its attendant evils. But I did want to speak to particularly people in that teen region. And, you know, we've had student matinees, which have been awesome. I love student matinees um, because students are super honest. They will not... um, if you're ever in a play and students are falling asleep, it's like, that's on the play, that's on you. And doing um, Little Women for student matinees was like doing it for a rock concert. Like they really responded and loved it and were arguing about it in a really interesting way. Um, Like, where's Joe on the spectrum? Why did she reject Lori? Is Lori gay? Is Lori on the sexuality spectrum? Blah, 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 blah. Um, But at least one performance, there were like two girls in the front row holding hands. And I was like, well, that's why I did this. Because I I wish I had seen something like this when I was growing up. Um, And I have 10 nieces and nephews. I have an enormous family. And uh, I wanted them to see something that felt like, made them feel like, well, it doesn't matter where I am there's always been room for me in some way even if it's not easy and there will be room for me and I don't have to like you know give it up and marry a man again like um there's a speech in the spoilers Beth dies um (laughs) there's a speech in the play which is based on a speech in the book um in which Beth is dying and Joe says Beth don't worry about all of us left behind. I'm going to become the new Beth. I am going to um, take over the duties of the house. I'm going to be stay at home. I'm going to take care of, care of our parents. And in the book, what happens is Beth is pretty much like, cool, thanks so much, and dies. And I was like reading it, like, what? So in, what happens in the play, again, spoilers, is Joe makes that same speech, and Beth goes, summons her dying strength and is uh, and Paula who plays Beth in this uh, show um, is so beautiful and wonderful and I just adore her Um, she like summons up her big strength and for the first time in this play she's so angry it's the first time she's really angry in the play and says screw you you cannot do that with your life that is not honoring me that's not life that's not growing up it's giving up 
you have to be whatever you are and that's how you'll honor me. And that for me is like, well, that is an example of, did you really want it to go how it goes in the book? <laughs> Where Beth is like, cool, thanks so much. I'm so glad you've given up on writing. <laughs> Especially since that's not what Alcott did. She became independently wealthy. She saved her family from like total penury. She traveled the world. She had adventures. She, she, she gave her character a more conventional ending because she had to, but we don't have to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, fingers crossed. I fingers yeah. crossed. Oh my just God. One of the Who things, you know, just hearing what you're saying, one of the things that I've always found really fascinating is that the book is not called Girls. It's called Little Women. Yeah. And it's about that, you know, how they're women, but they're belittled by the patriarchy. Yes. And I've always loved the title. Yes. Because of that. Yeah. I, I, I have a, I had an acting teacher once, uh, Kay Michael Patton, who's like so much about the play is always in the title. Um, puts a lot of pressure on one as a playwright to <laughs> name one's play correctly. Um, but it, I think that's true. For me, um, the deceptive nature of their lives is like, and I, I've, I, there is that like their lives are not important or that Joe should, I don't know, like go out and be a soldier if we're going to write a play about her or that they should like be great artists or great and even though joe is sort of on her way to becoming a great writer she's not um but their lives are still epic to them and i think it's a function of our sort of internalized misogyny and devaluing of women's lives that we think that that's not worth making a play over is fairly intimate relationships in which it's about a teenage heartbreak it's about one girl's death it's about like the tragedy of becoming a young mother and feeling like you're isolated it's about growing from a small child who feels undervalued to a woman who's suddenly in charge but they're not it's not like no one turns into Rambo, but I think that that's, <laughs> it's sort of like, but those stories are still meaningful. How many people in our lives are not, you know, maybe millionaires or maybe um, if you looked at their resumes, they're not the most conventionally accomplished people, but they shaped, they were the most important people in our lives. So for me, like Beth is the ultimate example of that. Beth for me is the little woman. And she, even though she's deceptively very, very simple, she holds together that family. Um, and Joe, she's Joe's like, she gives Joe's whole purpose and she makes Joe who she eventually becomes as a mm. writer, which is at the end of the play, Beth's, spoiler, Beth's essentially spirit says, Joe, tell it again. And you're like, oh, she's been telling the story of her sister, which is an homage to what Alcott did. But also I think if we're all trying to become fairly good artists or great artists or, um, and if we succeed at that, it's because of people who um, held us up who were maybe not like the most... Um, conventionally successful in the eyes of the world and to devalue those people I think is um, an example of how our culture devalues especially women's work and supportive work. I want to talk to you about the casting. Yeah! One of the, uh, one of the first things like I, I have loved seeing you play all these incredible heroines. Nice. I've read all the books and, and all that and I, uh, I don't think I was crazy to to assume when I read that you were doing this adaptation that mm -hmm. you were gonna play Joe. Yeah. And I you know, I didn't do my research before when I arrived and Joe is played by Crystalline Lloyd, who is fucking brilliant. Lovely. Brilliant. But I wanted to talk to you about 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 your choice yeah. not to be Joe. Yes. Because talking about, you know, room and giving people space. Yes. It's so beautiful that, because I mean, if I were you, I would have been like, I'm playing <laughs> Joe. She's like the coolest character. She's, yeah. you know, she, it's Joe. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about, about that, about giving, you know, I, I know this word is thrown around a lot, but I, I really think that 
during that is what an ally is. Thanks. Well, in 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 two thousand, like I am a feminist. I am someone who explicitly identifies as feminist, and like many other people who are real feminists, I'm like, if my feminism is not actively inclusive, it's fucking bullshit. Now that I know we can swear, I feel great. Um, all you want. Um, <laughs> it's bullshit. And in 2000, you know, I wrote the first draft of this in 2016. In 2017 um, is when I knew it was going to get produced for the jungle. And then pretty soon I knew it was going to get uh, produced at uh, primary stages. And um, I had two plays that I knew were coming, two world premieres coming out in 2018. And I was like, in 2017, I had uh, played leads in a couple of plays, and I was like, well, what am I doing if I'm not creating leading roles for women of color in the classical canon? If I'm not actively doing that, then I'm part of the problem. And leading roles, like heroes of the story. So I had two plays go up in 2018, Mansfield Park and um, Little Women at the Jungle, um, two new plays. And both of those roles, I was like, okay, I'm going to try very, very hard. I can't always control casting of everything, but very, very hard to make those roles women of color and fortunately I had creative teams that were very much on board and felt the same way so that happened in both my world premieres in Mansfield Park and Little Women in in uh, Minneapolis for Little Women actually it was a non-binary actor of color C. Michael Mingus and then we came to the city and uh, Sarna Lapine, my lovely awesome uh, collaborator here was directing and I, she and I had to talk about it we were like we really, really want this to go to a woman of color or non-binary actor of color. We were very like open to all of those, or um, a gender queer actor of color. We were very open to all those um, doors. Um, we saw all sorts of people, and we saw lovely auditions. And Crystal Lloyd was the best person who came in the room um, for Joe and brought her so much of herself to it. Um, and we were open to like, okay, we, we, we're gonna find the right person, but we were like, we just think it, it's something that needs to be on the American stage right now. Um, it's something that if we're making about American women right now, um, who is expected, who is punished the most for not being in their box, who is expected to do so much of the emotional labor of sort of dragging history towards them is uh, women of color. Um, so we were very, very interested in that. And then Kristen walked in and she was awesome. So uh, we were very lucky. Yeah, so, and both in Mansfield Park and Little Women, I was like, okay, well, I like to work. I like to work as an actor. Um, it is also how I get my health insurance, because, <laughs> uh, which is not inconsiderable. Um, but uh, I, I was like, okay, I'm not gonna play the lead. I don't always want to play the lead in my own stuff anyway because that just seems like a narcissism machine. But I, I was like, I'm quite consciously trying to, and thanks to my collaborators, Sarah and Sarna, and uh, the team at Primary Stages and the team at The Jungle, like, okay, we're going to consciously tell this story. It's not going to be an accident. It's going to be like, we're really trying to push for this. And it turns out if you push for that, it can happen. I, and I just think that also is, it's just way past time. Um, it's so interesting when people are really dramaturgically rigid about it. Um, I think that's like, you know, <laughs> oh, because people are only, dr like everyone you see on the American stage who's in a quote-unquote classic is 15 years too old and has all their original teeth and like, like you know, doesn't have smallpox scars. We're not dramaturgically rigid about any of that stuff, but we're dramaturgically rigid about race and gender. And it's like, hmm, I think we can open our minds just a little bit because it's, I, I, I think it's pretty indicative of the biases of the powers that be rather than, and frankly, sometimes also the, uh, you know, some members of the critical establishment, that those characters are assumed to be white, especially in my pieces. I'm always like, these are actors in a room doing a play. I'm not saying like things aren't 
Like, it's not like here's a perfect porcelain teacup. Like, people play animals and people play children. And, like, I say here we are in the drawing room and that means we're in the drawing room. I'm not pretending it's not a play. It's not film. It doesn't have to be dramaturgically rigid, although there's an argument even film doesn't have to be dramaturgically rigid. But I'm like, especially because of that, why would I be dramaturgically rigid on race except that it's like, quote unquote, what's expected, especially when it brings more to the story now about what women of color are expected to do, how they're trapped by these boxes, how it especially impacts them, et cetera, et cetera. This is one of the few productions that I've ever seen that, uh, you know, colorblind is bullshit and this is one of the few productions that I have ever seen that was color conscious yes and I loved for instance that none of the March sisters look at all like the other because it's this beautiful and and the mom yeah um, army it's this beautiful multicultural yeah you know group of of, um, of women yes. playing these characters and I felt sitting there that even just because of that, yeah. there's a message say, reminding us that you know, men are trying to oppress women, yes. whether they're white, black, Asian, Latina, yes. etc. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, again, speaking to teenagers and children, I'm like so often young people of color looking up and being like, I'm being so told on the stage and being told quote unquote this is not for me and it's like that's bullshit the classics are classics because they're universal I, it, it's just it's, and that's a failure on the part of theater makers to have the imagination to respond to it I, and it's fascinating what people feel like they can say right to like um, you know um, Mansfield Park which was at Northlight Theater um in Skokie, Illinois, that's where uh, Fanny Price uh, was a woman of color, Kayla Carter, who's awesome. Um, so, so awesome. And we had a color conscious cast. And a man ro- uh, raised his hand in the talkback and was like, do you think this is how Jane Austen would have cast it? And I was like, well, Jane Austen is dead. <laughs> like, why are we... But what I think is so fucked up about it is it's actually not even dramaturgically accurate historically like it's just a ratio of people of color because if we actually look not only at america of today but america of the past like people have always existed where movies made in the 1940s think only white people existed that's never been true so it's just like this very conscious erasure and of gender, gender, different gender orientations, different sexual orientations, people who've never fit inside the box, um, of people of color. And I just think like, well, why are we doing it today? Why are we still doing it today? Except that we think it's traditional. It makes me angry. <laughs> makes me very angry also. Yeah. Something that I really also uh, loved about that production is that it looks, even though, as you're saying, right, you know, it's not like a hugely elaborate set. You know, you, you have not built Downton Abbey no. <laughs> at, at the Cherry Lane. And we're often asked to use our imagination yeah. as art should do anyway. Yeah. I love the ease with which the actors embody the characters in his bodies. And mm. I love, for instance, how they move in their costumes. And yeah. it's, it's like I usually go see these period pieces and I'm sweating just looking at them (laughs) and the march sisters probably you know they probably didn't have like huge wardrobe budgets yeah but also they were busy women like they had to run errands they had to help around the house and again your little woman is the first time where i've seen that where it's not this like tight beautiful little corset drama where they're suffering in beautiful towns (laughs) yeah like uh our costume designer valerie bart who's wonderful um has worked with Cerner before, has worked with me before, was so smart about um, not only creating a lot of period, very period correct costumes um, on a, an off-Broadway budget, which is, not, which is incredibly difficult, uh, but also uh, very smart about how they were used, the kind of work that they were doing, the kind of, uh, all they do 
basically the first scene is um, complain about how much they hate working and their jobs and being poor, um, which they do. They're very poor. And uh, but she was also really amazing about she did so much research into dress reform, um, which was coming about about that time a little bit later but our argument was you know joe is a a a sort of foremother uh for lack uh, of that um trend whereas women were rejecting corsets ladies wear were wearing but so she was very consciously designing that into it and it was so helpful to tell the story of joe can't fit in Lori, arguably, who comes from a lot of privilege, who's wealthy, later as they start growing up, he just can blend in and Joe can't, even if she wanted to. And she says, even if I wanted to, don't you understand? Even if I wanted to, I couldn't. I would be dreadful at it. I would, they would all say, look at that great ugly boy in the dress biting his tongue till it fell off. I can't ever be with someone like you. So I want to be what I am. You, you know, and I think that is the experience of a lot of people who don't fit in boxes. It's like even asking someone to closet themselves. It's not like closeting really, except in some circumstances, but closeting is very difficult. It's difficult to disguise yourself in that way. And uh, Joe, um, particularly as a woman of color, can't. She can't have that privilege, even if she obeys all the rules. The system is designed to defeat her. So she might as well try to be herself. I'm using herself. Now, Joe might use different pronouns, but she sort of exists then. So she uses him and hers sometimes. The adaptations that you've done so far are all of works that are in the public domain, mm-hmm. right? Little Women is in the public Little domain, Little Women is right? in the public yeah. domain, yeah. If you could get your hands on a piece not in the public domain, and if you got to live a thousand more years, which I hope you <laughs> do, you know, what book that both maybe infuriates you but also fascinates you, would you like to give the Hamill oh, uh, take? There are so many. Um, so so many i just inquired about uh, oh you know what i really wanted to do uh it can't happen here uh and someone's done it but i haven't seen their adaptation so i kind of want to do that um it is not public domain grips of wrath i really would like to do um uh watership down would be really interesting and weird now that you know i made a man a parrot um i'm really it was so fun to watch like 60 dudes come in and do their best parrot audition and they were all great um i was like i'm very i've been obsessed i've been again this odyssey where people play animals and i'm obsessed with animal uh, actors playing animals i think it's just like so watchable and interesting and weird so Watership Down would be interesting and I feel super pertinent but also like so challenging (laughs) I'm like how am I going to write a bunch of people being rabbits for a whole play (laughs) but I did inquire about the rights to that so for Watership Down because I was so obsessed with making a mana parrot and I was like wouldn't it be awesome to have a whole company of actors be rabbits a whole play and it'll either be amazing or a huge disaster but it'll be interesting <laughs> david lynch gets away with his buddy movies yeah it's yeah. true so i don't remember the remember that one where he has naomi watts dressed in a rabbit costume yes. and no one even knew it was naomi watts so i say go for it <laughs> i i asked we'll see what they say i think their initial response was a little like you want to do what a stage adaptation of what? Um, but I I think it was cool. Or oh, the big one would be The Handmaid's Tale, but that would be hard now. Mm-hmm. It's hard. HBO has it. But I really, I asked for the record. I asked about adapting The Handmaid's Tale before Handmaid's Tale, the series, comes out. And I keep refusing to watch Handmaid's Tale, the series, so that if I ever get the rights for the play, I'll be untainted. <laughs> But I think that one's a pipe dream. I don't think they're ever going to give me that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that I really want to ask you as, mm-hmm. as an artist and as a woman living in 2019, mm-hmm. what are your methods of self-care? Because 
this world's fucked up. Yeah. I mean, for all of us, right? I I struggle with it some. Um, in fact, arguably, I struggle with it a bunch. 2017, it was really interesting because um, Pride and Prejudice and Vanity Fair, they overlapped. And I was... Um, they were both totally new plays and I was in both of them. And um, I realized at the end of 2017, I had not taken two days off in a row for an entire year. Um, it was a good year professionally, but like I worked really hard, but I was like, okay, that suggests a big imbalance. Um, again, having a family member get really sick. I was like, okay, you know, like you only have so much time. I read this amazing article on loss in the New Yorker recently, which is like, uh, we don't get to keep things, but we do get to keep watch. And I was like, ah, okay. You know, I, I sometimes it's easy to get lost, um, especially when you really love working in work. Um, so I'm struggling with that some. I have started to, I, therapy helps. Therapy is good self-care for me. Yeah, I've started to try to like very consciously try to take off like a half day or a day a week um get away from my cell phone and my computer I have mixed success um and socializing is helpful for me I go out with friends I like um but yeah therapy is big for me I, I I'm someone who believes in paying a stranger to listen to me complain uh, <laughs> for an hour um and there were times in my life where I was more resistant to it, but I, I think I'm someone who like um, believes mental health should be destigmatized. I certainly struggle with anxiety and depression and some OCD, and um, so I try to be pretty open about that. And therapy just helps like take the pressure off of that. Um, sometimes I go and get acupuncture. And I don't want to end on a morbid note. No. And I hope you don't think this is morbid. No. Because in my mind now it feels like, oh God, this is depressing. But something that made me, <laughs> sorry, I'm laughing. <laughs> but I, I took my niece, uh, she was 15, I yeah. think, when, uh, when you did Pride and Prejudice. Yes. And I had Pride and Prejudice, my favorite book of all time. And yes. I had bought her Pride and Prejudice for Christmas, I think, once. And she yeah. never read it. Yeah. But then after we saw your production she finished the whole thing in like a weekend oh my god and it made me really excited and this is the morbid part (laughs) it made me really excited to think that a hundred years from now young women and young men also are going to have the opportunity to not only read the beautiful Jane Austen books and the beautiful Louisa May Alcott books but also they're going to have your adaptations as a companion piece and you know considering that Little Women is in a way a lot about legacy and a lot about we leave behind and a lot about you know uh, women telling history and women chronicling history because men don't want women to do this (laughs) yeah I wonder if you ever think about that and go into like spirals or is it just like anxiety Um, inducing (laughs) I think about it like for me it's not morbid um because I I am someone who's like time is running out death is coming like you know like (laughs) Every day. Um, I uh, arguably, I mean, I don't know why I think that. <sighs> That's therapy talk. Uh, I, 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 I hope that I leave something behind. Um, uh, I think that, um, you know, I, I feel like all you can do is kind of try to express what's happening now and knowing you won't have any um, backwards lens until you are indeed at the end of your life Um, and even then you can't um, tell uh, you know as Hamilton says you can't control who tells your story I feel like uh, you know I do have some new plays in the works and some of them I'm like it's really easy to get caught up in um oh, will people like this? Um, and I'm, I envy playwrights who are like, I know some playwrights who are like, this is awesome. Every play they'd write, they're like, this is awesome. I'm gonna go straight to Broadway. And I, every play I write, I'm always like, this is terrible. No one will ever see this. This is a bad idea. I made a mistake. I'm so embarrassed. And I'd like slowly like grow to love it or, you know, get 
cool with it um, eventually. Uh, but I I feel like all you can do is sort of like pour what you have into it and not worry about how you're judged currently or historically. I the nice thing about like I love being an actor and I love being a stage actor. Um, the nice thing about being a stage actor, even productions of plays, and the sad thing about them is they're kind of like sand mandalas. They're beautiful. Even the most beautiful plays I've ever seen, I'm like, and it's now it just lives in my memory. Maybe it wasn't even so great except that night. Um, but that that's why I love theater specifically because I do feel like it is sort of like life it's beautiful or it's whatever it is and then it's gone and you only have the memory of it and um that's what I kind of love about it that's it's interesting to be a playwright because I'm like even when I'm writing the play and um even when it gets published and I can say I think I can say Little Women is getting published um, which for which I'm extremely grateful by Dramatist Play Service um they've been really wonderful to me um even when I'm writing down a play there's always a moment of like loss when it's published because generally then it's sort of not your baby anymore it's out in the world you're like call me from college um do good don't go to jail um but that it it changes and it, it in 10 years 15 years you don't know it may just kind of be crap but the thing I like about a production or being in a production or the when a play really works when you're watching your play and it's really working you're like wow this is so beautiful and so great and I don't know if it's ever going to happen again sometimes something works so beautifully in rehearsal and it's never quite that magical again but that moment of like the magicness of it is nice so at least it's nice it's nice I grew up in quite uh a rural era, uh, area of America. I used to have quite the accent. Um, upstate New York. And uh, uh, before I saw plays, I saw, I read plays. Uh, my dad had O'Neill. And I loved O'Neill because you can read him like a book. And it's humbling to me to be like, oh, okay, now it's going to be like a book. Like people can read it and think about it even after I die. Um, and it's nice to be like, to a uh, little women is dedicated in addition to my mom um um to uh, my nieces and nephews to be like it's nice to think like oh they're you know they'll have something to remember me by besides a lot of crap <laughs> in my back in in my closet in my back closet which they'll have to clear out um it's nice to think like okay they'll they'll have something of mine that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank for you your so time. much. And this was such a pleasure. Thank you honestly. for your work, also. Oh, please. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of the Maximum Theater and Performance Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or opinions that are different from our own, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at Maximum. Kate Hamill is at Kate R One. That's O N E, and I am at Jose Solis Mayen. If you enjoy the show please leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we have merch. You can buy coffee mugs, tote bags, and stickers with your favorite Maximoisms. You can get to the store via Maximo.com. All proceeds go to helping the podcast improve our song quality. Thank you.